On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite, and as always, I am joined by the talented and brilliant Stefania. Stefania, how are you and how are things going at uh, the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness? Things are good, and you're also always way too nice when you introduce me. I never feel like I deserve the intro to that extent, but thank you. Um, Yeah, things are good. Things are trucking along, um, really busy. Typically, summer is supposed to be quiet, but uh, I think, you know, you throw out what the norms are uh, after this pandemic and and still in it. So, yeah, we're working on a lot of things, uh, keeping super busy, but overall, like, really exciting. So, yeah, good, exciting. Vote Housing campaign is moving along. Um, check it out at votehousing.ca. Uh, but yeah, how are things are you for you at Blue Door? Hey, you know what's really exciting this month? Of course, it is uh, Pride Month. And right. we're really excited because we have three individuals now at our new inclusion program, the first of its kind in York region for 2S LGBTQ uh, plus uh, I plus uh, youth. So it's super cool. And we're super pumped about that. It took a while, um, but it's great. We just want to expand on that. So that's pretty cool. And Entertainment Tonight Canada is going to do a little segment with Degrassi and talking about that program. Wow. And so yeah, it's, it's lots of uh, fun stuff going on. And I know, just I'm going to throw it back to you. I heard something about Wayfair, not just a furniture company, right? Like not oh, just an online company. Yeah. What's happening there? I mean, it's really just us riding the coattails of our partners in the States with Community Solutions and the U.S. Built for Zero. Um, and they have been super generous to include us as their Canadian partners in a like big sponsorship program where uh, they're going to be donating to the work happening across North America. So hence, including U.S. Built for Zero and Built for Zero Canada and the work they're basically, yeah, going to be giving us a financial contribution of some crazy amount that we've never seen before to help us uh, specifically doing the work in the 39 communities that we support through Built for Zero. So that's communities who are working towards ending chronic and veteran homelessness, of course, on the path to ending all homelessness. And yeah, we're just really excited about it. It was very, very fortunate um, situations. Sometimes it's all who you know. 
Yeah, and they're stepping up. And speaking of people stepping up, uh, I'm so excited mm. for our guest, someone who this is a three-timer. And I was uh, saying to her <laughs> earlier, we could have her on 10 times or every week uh, because she does so much and such yeah. impactful work that uh, there's so much to talk about always. And we're so delighted to uh, have her back. Can you tell us about today's guest? Yeah, I am super pumped to have her on as well. Uh, so I'm excited to introduce our wonderful guest, Cheyenne Rutnam. She's passionate about equity and developing inclusive and accessible spaces and processes. She's dedicated much of her time and expertise in child welfare and homelessness. She's the co-founder and executive lead of the Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition. Uh, she also serves on the board of the Children's Aid Society of Toronto, and she's a member of the Equity and Inclusion Council of the Children's Aid Foundation of Canada, among many, many, many other seats and roles that she holds. It's it's incredible. There are a lot more hours in the day for Cheyenne, or she's just magical and makes it seem that way. She's also the provincial rep on the National Council of Youth and Care Advocates, a steering committee member of the Canadian Lived Experience Leadership Network and works with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. So it's really lovely to have her uh, work with us too. And she will soon serve on the Canadian Consortium on Child and Youth Trauma, CAC. She is a coordinator for NextGen at the Mosaic Institute, advisor to both IC Initiative and Kudai Center. Uh, she's an independent consultant, engagement specialist, personal development coach, capacity builder, media commentator, public speaker, ambassador of the Children's Aid Foundation of Canada, and partakes in various communities through volunteerism. And that is, again, just a short synopsis of the incredible human. Cheyenne, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited uh, to be back. <laughs> I, I, listen, I was tired just like halfway through that, I'm thinking. And I, I told Cheyenne uh, earlier, I was saying I, I follow, uh, follow her on social media. And I, I said, man, I'm tired just watching that. It's incredible what you pack into uh, 24 hours. And we are grateful for it. So it's so great uh, to have you back. We're excited to catch up with you and, and get some uh, updates on the important and amazing and impactful work that you're doing. Now, um, you're doing it as a first voice advocate. Now I say first voice because I know that is a term that you advocate for. Uh, can we kick things off by talking about why first voice and, and why that maybe instead of, uh, or should we be using that instead of lived experience voices? Yeah, that's a really great question that you're asking in terms of terminology and you know, as I as I always advocate, um, language is very powerful, and the way that people are labeled can impact the way that they navigate through different spaces, but also the way that they look at themselves and how it impacts themselves. And lived experience, um, it, it's a valid terminology, but it's it's outdated. Um, lived experience was something that I stopped using a while back ago, I think in 2012, and around that time I started using lived expert and lived expertise, um, and that really showcases the fact that it's not just experience, it's wisdom, it's expertise, it's, it's knowledge that is untapped by many, many different spaces, but also not recognized or um, not validated in many, many spaces as well. And then afterwards, I thought, okay, we need to move forward from lived expertise to something even more better. 
And so that's when I started using first voice advocates. Um, and now I've introduced that terminology into the child welfare system after the, the homelessness and housing sector. And the reason why uh, first voice advocate is, is very crucial is that it kind of distinguishes from people who are lived experts um, to people who are actually doing advocacy work themselves and, and in leadership positions. So when you think of first voice advocates, you, would, you could think about me, you could think about even Cindy Blackstock, um, who does a lot of great advocacy work um, in terms of the FNMI communities. Um, you could think about other um, homeless and housing uh, you know, leaders as well with lived expertise. But just because you're a lived expert doesn't mean you're a first voice advocate. So lived expert is having the lived expertise of various sectors and systems um, and the way that navigation works. But then first voice advocacy is really about taking that one step, uh, one notch higher and talking about leadership roles and really making changes within sectors and systems. Ah, excellent. And listen, I, uh, last time you were on, or maybe it was the first time I remember that term lived expert, I've been using it ever since. And now good to know, hey, I'm a lived expert. And if I go out and do advocacy work and take it to that leadership level, uh, the first, um, first voice is pretty cool. So that advocate, that's so cool. So thank you uh, for always educating myself and our listeners. Very cool. Let's jump in and talk about the work that the organization you co-founded like one of them, you've this, but let's talk about what you co-founded is doing because it really is so critical to the future of children's lives. In May, there was a special announcement about your Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition working with the Ontario government to take steps to better prepare and support youth leaving care. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be? Yeah, this is very exciting um, as lived experts, but also first voice advocates. Um, and so let's backtrack a little bit in terms of history um, and really talk about a timeline about what happened before and how we really arrived at this place today. And so if folks remember um, at the pre uh, or the, the preliminary COVID days, um, when things weren't necessarily too, too bad, but there was something happening, um, we realized that there was not much talk uh, in terms of elevating first voices um, um, in terms of how they were being impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you were hearing voices from other sectors, other systems, perhaps systemic players, but there was a lack of attention in terms of child welfare young people. Not many people were being heard, not many spaces were available to be heard. And so what the Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition did, um, which is the organization that I co-founded and I'm, I'm the CEO of, is that we held town halls. We held three different town halls, all together about 110 people showed up to these um, town halls. And the three town halls were divided amongst uh, child welfare young people, um, new immigrant and settlement related young people, as well as mental health related young people as well, in terms of the mental health system. And what we heard from all of these young people is that the the pandemic not only provided or facilitated um, issues, it exacerbated issues that they were already experiencing prior to the pandemic. Right now in the current system in, the, in, in society, a lot of people are now experiencing things that they may have never experienced before, or they also are experiencing some things that are, that are exacerbated, um, such as poverty. However, for young people, we, we don't necessarily think about young people as independent for some reason. We think of them as having family. We think of them as having extensions to other supports. However, people from the child welfare system are often, um, you know, kicked out, I would say, because it's not voluntary. But at 18, it's an arbitrary age indicator. At 18, people are like, you're okay, you're 18 now, now you're going out in the community by yourself. And so at that point, 
that becomes a pipeline into homelessness, human trafficking, into the prison pipeline, into the bail systems pipeline, into mental health um, systems as well. And so we know that those things have been happening for our system. It has been happening for our young people. And in this context, the pandemic context, it just exacerbated those realities. And we were really hearing that um, in these town halls. Um, and then we took that information that we collected from the three town halls that we did, which was also um, you know, attended by different levels of government as well. And we utilized the outcomes and asked questions at our annual Youth and Care Day event that happens every year at May 14th. And this further added to the um, the rigor of how important and how um, imminent this issue was for, for child welfare young people, but also alumni who are still um, experiencing the outcomes of coming from the child welfare system, um, even though they're not in the system anymore. And then this led me to think, okay, we need to do something bigger than this. Um, we can't just keep asking people to talk about this. We need to do something about this. And at that point, um, we met up with other First Voice advocates and we ended up partnering with Youth and Care Canada. And we co-wrote a letter that was publicized um, before uh, or after we sent the letter, the same letter to the government, uh, to Todd Smith, um, and then Janet Maynard was CC'd in it, Jill Dunlop was uh, CC'd in it as well. And then a couple of weeks later, um, after the public and the direct letters were, um, you know, sent, um, the ministry, or I should say David Remington came to the table in addition to Jill Dunlop and Janet Maynard, Maynard etc. And then from there, the ministry was invited, so the Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services, and then ar around that time in November, we started to really talk about what does a partnership look like if we were to partner, because it, it was very obvious that we were all on the same page that we wanted to make changes in the system, and that the current system is not working and that we needed something that would better um, prepare young people to really be successful or at least um, have better outcomes after they they exit or transition from the child welfare system. And then in April of 2021. Actually, in January, we knew that the partnership was happening, but we couldn't say anything. And then in April, we signed the contract. And then in May, um, we had the press release, a news release that was released by the government. Um, and then now we're we're out here doing the work. And so it's just been a, a, a roller coaster ride uh, of thrill, um, not necessarily to, to make it sound negative, it's really thrilling because um, this is also the first time that government is uh, partnering with First Voice Advocates in this manner. This has never been done before um, in Ontario and perhaps even nationally um, to this extent. And so this is an actual partnership. We're working together. It's not a procurement. This is the ministry, the government with us working together on um, changing the framework of how young people transition out of the child welfare system. Oh, wow. It's, that's, I mean, that's absolutely huge. And congratulations to you um, and other uh, First Voice advocates, because, I mean, this has been years in the making. You made it sound simpler than I'm sure it was. It's not. Uh, so this is, this is big. It's huge. And, and let's talk about the province for a minute. What would it mean for Ontario to switch the, this kind of archaic youth aging out at 18 system uh, to readiness indicators. Can you tell us a little bit about the ethical systems reset? 
Yeah. So, I mean, anything that is progressive to me is ethical. Um, and so for this work in particular, we, we're calling this the Readiness Indicators Project. Um, and this is essential because this is the first phase of a multi-phased approach. And this phase, we're co-leading it. Um, so it's Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition and Youth in Your Canada, mentored by the Children's Aid Foundation of Canada, and of course, um, the partner with partnership with MCCSS. And so in this phase, um, YCC and OCAC are really co-leading um, first uh, lived expert engagement processes. Um, and so it's really about questioning and hearing from young people and lived experts um, about their experiences in terms of transitions, what worked, what didn't work. Um, I know as a person who transitioned out of the child welfare system, I can't even use the word transition because I was I was cut off from the system at 18. That's not a transition. That's being forced out. I know that you know, coming from the child welfare system, a lot of my negative outcomes were an outcome of coming from the child welfare system and being unprepared. Um, we know that child welfare young people, um, and I've said this in, in the other two uh, appearances that I've had um, on, on the podcast with you, Matt and Michael, but I also said in the other two, um, you know, segments that our trauma histories are very um, relevant in terms of how we fare well or not well uh, when we exit the child welfare system or when we get pushed out of the child welfare system. When we force people out on their own at 18 years old, to me, that is a generational um, dis disservice to the very population that you're supposed to be taking care of as a state. Um, and so we wouldn't do that normally in, in traditional families outside of the child welfare system. So why do we expect the same thing for young people in the child welfare system to be just ready at 18? And then, yeah, we'll provide you a little bit of support here and there, but that doesn't mean that internally they're ready. So readiness is really about gauging the young person's readiness, not on the, the, the premise of whether the system thinks the young person is ready, but fairly on the young person's readiness themselves and really supporting the young person to understand what readiness can mean and could mean um, if they don't understand it themselves as well and really asking them are you ready what supports do you need and if you're not ready then we need to think about what the alternative options are but right now kicking people out at 18 makes absolutely no sense we have dismal dismal outcomes coming out of the child welfare system in terms of a high population in the homeless sector um, who are young people are from the child welfare system. A high number of people in the human trafficking system or, or you know, that, that, that theme is also from the child welfare system. If you're in group homes, you're higher likely to be recruited by pimps and stuff like that. And so we know that we are already, um, you know, we're already failed just by being affiliated with the child welfare system, even though um, technically the system thinks that taking us out of our homes is the best decision. But if that is the best decision, then the system needs to do its due diligence to make sure that when we're ready and we exit the system, that we fare well, just like our counterparts do outside of the system as well. Absolutely. And I think that is why this work that you're doing is so exciting because it's like, it's, it's again, kind of crystallizing what we already know. Like it's, it's not a hidden, a secret, you know what I mean? Um, and it's just, it's, it's projects like this that I think are going to really going to be groundbreaking. So just for some context um, for folks outside of Ontario, such as myself. Um, so while the work is happening on the new framework, the Ontario government actually did extend the moratorium on youth aging out of care arrangements with children's aid societies to September 30th, 2022. 
And according to the release, that if, um, that part of the announcement uh, with your organization, that affects more than 11,700 children and youth in care with these particular societies. So that's kinship care, foster care, and group care placements. So bringing it back to the work that's going on right now, what is some of the work happening to help develop the framework? So for instance, I know there are space engagement sessions, for example, example happening in uh, June and July. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a lot of work. Um, and so the proposal that we provided to the ministry um, and that we built really talks about prioritizing engagement and really prioritizing lived expert voices, but also first voice advocate voices as well. And having different opportunities for people to be engaged in this process um, so that we're all collectively working toward informing what this new framework can look like. Um, you know, at the offset, at the onset, I should say, we, we know what we wanted, but we also wanted to hear um, externally as well within the system in terms of lived experts, but then also allies who are stakeholders, professional stakeholders. And we also know that lived experts are not silos. They're, they can also be professionals and they can also be first voice advocates as well. So we have a really good mix of people. One of the first things that we did was we, we struck, um, obviously, the partnership. So the partnership between OCAC, the Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition, YCC, the Youth and Care Canada Network, as well as um, Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services, and then supported by the Children's Aid Foundation of Canada. And then the second thing that we did was we struck the uh, an advisory um, series of tables. And so we have three different tables. One of them is FNMI, so First Nations, Métis and Inuit um, you know, focus table. Another one is the ACB table, the African Caribbean Black table. And the other one, the last one is a mixed table. And so these tables focus on communities that are number one um, with the FNMI table and the ACB table overrepresented in Ontario um, in terms of child welfare, and which also means that in that exiting or transitioning phase, they're also overrepresented, like logically speaking, in homelessness and other, other outcomes and pipelines as well. Um, and then the third table, which is the mixed table, really looks at intersectionality um, and kind of tries to bring together um, people, folks who are not necessarily captured within the first two tables, but who also bring very important um, analysis and, and advice. For example, um, the LGBTQ uh, 2SIA community members, um, disabilities community members. And also just to say intersectionality exists across all three tables, obviously, but this is just a way that through 40 people, we're able to really um, engage with communities um, from a, a leadership perspective. So a lot of the young people on these uh, advisories have experience with advising already, and this was important, but these tables are not just young people. It's a mix of young people, but also um, professional stakeholders as well. So we have a couple of CASs, we have um, First Nations, Inuit and Métis organizations. We also have community organizations. So it's really a mix uh, modality. Um, and that was very important. The third thing that we're going to be doing, and right now we're, we're in the recruitment process, um, is recruiting uh, young people uh, across 12 different Brave Space engagement tables. Um, and I just wanna pause here for a second. So the reason why I chose uh, Brave Space engagement as terminology is because um, it's basically consultation. But if you look at the historical uh, context of the word consultation, it, it has a lot of negative um, connotations to it and it's very colonial. And so we also know that young people with 
lived expertise or just lived experts in general, regardless of age, it's their burden of labor. It's a burden of labor to be able to um, provide feedback, to tap into their experience, to um, support the informing of a better system. And we know that because people come from trauma histories, it takes courage and bravery to really be open enough um, to have these engagements happen and for you or that young person to be able to participate in that manner um, for, for the future of other people, not, not just themselves. And so not, that's why we call it the brave space engagement because safe space is more about consensus. Brave space is about dialogue and it's about engagement to really engage not just to ask questions and then leave, but just engage to really understand what they're saying. So this is happening in July. Um, so we have a whole bunch of tables in July um, and there's 12 different tables, different themes. And then what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be um, you know, taking all the data from all these different engagements, whether it's BSC tables or uh, BSC sessions, I mean, or the advisory tables, we're going to be um, putting that into a report. Um, and then that will be submitted to the minister which will help inform um, the, the, the new framework. Um, and obviously there's going to be other phases that we haven't necessarily talked about yet, but um, will be coming soon. And just to reiterate that this is a partnership. And so it's really exciting that we're able to do this with the ministry. They have, they've been at all the tables as well and all the, and they will be at the um, engagements as well. So this is not just, you know, procuring money and going out and doing whatever we want. This is actually, you know, we've actually come up with this plan in terms of, uh, you know, approving this plan together and making sure that this is going to be successful together as well. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, Complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. I'm so looking forward to the findings of all of this. And I think not just because it's obviously going to inform key policy and kind of throwing out the old that doesn't work and bringing in that process, progress, um, but also process. I think there's so many learnings, you know, just like the meta learnings of how this is being put together that I think just is so applicable uh, Canada-wide. So super looking forward to it and then maybe having you back on um, to talk about that. So uh, I just wanted to switch gears a little bit um, and talk a little bit more about right now. So, you know, obviously we all know how COVID-19 and the pandemic has really amplified the inequities um, in our society and to the point where it's actually becoming way more mainstream. There's like a little bit more of a consciousness happening. I'm having conversations with people that normally wouldn't have stuff on their radar. Um, and so that's been a really interesting um, going through this pandemic and a some of the little bit of the silver linings that we've seen. Um, and it, it feels like people are paying more attention. So, your organization, the one of them, the Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition, and your partners have really highlighted the impacts COVID-19 has had on youth in particular, which I think is so important. Um, based on the town halls, town halls, wow, speak much, uh, town halls your organization held, can you walk us through some of the unique ways child welfare was hit by COVID-19 and some of the solutions that we can and should implement? 
I mean, just generally speaking as well, as a society, we understand that we're not living in the same time or place that our great grandparents were living in. And so the economy looks different, life is different, and the next generation will look different in terms of their experiences compared to my generation as well. And so just even looking at that from a broader range, we already see some of the discrepancies that will come about that, right? In terms of income versus cost of living versus um, you know everything else that people are juggling. But the thing is, is that for young people from the child welfare system, like I said before, we come from complex and chronic trauma histories. And you know, part of our journey in terms of living is surviving and survival mode for us is almost lifelong for almost every single person from the child welfare system. And because we are, we have come from the system, we're in, institutionalized. And as institutionalized peoples, sometimes you need to work a little bit better with institutionalized people so that they're not institutionalized anymore, number one. And number two, you're actually working to build the proper and adequate skills, not just the bare minimum, in order to push people out and let them go on their own. You can provide young people with a little bit of extra money but then if they don't if they don't have the skills to know how to how to work with the money if they don't know how to work with their financial literacy education to implement it into their lives that's not going to do much for them so we need to make sure that young people in the child welfare system are adequately prepared adequately prepared to know how to implement what they're being taught or what the, the papers are being given at least um and so when they go into the into into the community by themselves they're better prepared but Right now, it's it that's not the case, and there's a lot of um, discrepancies and inconsistencies across the province in terms of experiences of the child welfare system for young people as well. We don't all have the same experience with the system, and so the inconsistencies are actually very negative because some people might actually have more supports than other people, and they're, they're they. I don't want to use the word privilege, but that's a word that comes to mind because I don't think we could use the word privilege if you're part of any, any system like the child welfare system. But the other difference is that when child welfare young people are edging that age indicator, there's a lot of predators out there as well. I remember when I was in the child welfare system and I was growing up in group homes, um, I was almost trafficked um, and somehow I escaped. Uh, one of my sisters was trafficked across the country after she exited the child welfare system. People know where group homes are. People know where foster homes are. And they, they literally stalk these homes and try to befriend young girls, young boys, regardless of gender. And that's the other thing too, like if you're from the child welfare system and you're a girl, um, you might be a lot more likely to be trafficked or to be um, you know, stalked for the purpose of, purposes of trafficking and grooming. But then when you're from the child welfare system, regardless of what gender you are, I think that you're still going to be stalked anyways. And then when you add other intersections such as being trans or being bisexual or you know the other indicators, it actually um, exacerbates your likelihood of of being trafficked as well because your vulnerabilities also increase. Um, and so we're talking about very vulnerable people who are at potential though. We're, we have the potential to be whatever we wanna be, but we need the system in order to better support us to be able to reach those milestones that we set for ourselves. Um, we might have an idea that a milestone is education, but not everyone is on the education stream or want to be on the education stream. So really thinking about differential responses and differential planning. But like I said before, 
the, the main difference is that when you're from the child welfare system, it's a pipeline into other negative systems. It's a pipeline into death. I know people who have exited the child welfare system and who passed away within the first three years that they exited. So before they were 21, one of them was one of the young people that I worked with. Um, and so this is just a system that has been failing young people. And so we have an obligation um, as a society to pay attention and to really um, push for real change and push for something that's ethical. Um, and I think that the Readiness Indicators Project is on the right track. It's it's trying to do that. And really, it puts it puts people back into the driver's seat, um, first advocates and lived experts in the driver's seat to really figure out what that framework will look like. Because right now, we don't know what that framework will look like. We have an idea that it should be based on readiness, but the exact details we'll figure out from the young people themselves. And I think that input um, is so, so important. And, and I really take away how much first voices need to be centered, recognized, paid, and in those positions of leadership when it comes to meaningful change and decisions uh, being made in our systems. Um, with an estimated 6,700 youth who age out of the system in Canada each year, we know that is one of the direct pipelines into homelessness, as, as you've as you've mentioned. Um, and 18 is incredibly young to be cut off. You know, as I get older, I'm turning 35 this year. I'm just like, wow, I was a baby at 18. You know what I mean? Like, what? <laughs> like, there's just so much we haven't experienced yet. Um, and so the Ontario moratorium, it goes until September 2022. Do you think this is also an opportunity to show governments that it should be indefinite? give time for a better process. So, I mean, in the beginning, initially, um, even if folks look at the initial letter that we sent out, we did ask for an indefinite, um, you know, moratorium. Um, however, if we're talking about readiness, it doesn't matter whether the end date is September 30th or December 31st, um, because the, the new framework is going to be based on readiness. That's, that's my take of it. Um, and so it's because at the end of the day, some 18 year olds will be ready. We're not saying that all 18 year olds will not be ready. Most people don't want to be part of the system. Like, <laughs> do you want to be part of the child welfare system? A lot of people would be like, no. <laughs> so it's we're not saying that every young person needs to wants to wants to remain in care or needs extra time, but we're saying that every single person is different. So then our response to every single person should be differential. And part of a differential response is really working in partnership with the young person to drive their own bus in terms of gauging their readiness and really doing our due, due diligence to set them up in a way that when they're also in the community, once they're ready to transition into the community, that there's still more adequate, um, you know, supports being offered while they're independent as well, beyond monetary supports. Um, and we know that the monetary supports that people currently receive are inadequate. And so what does that look like as well? But in terms of the project itself that that I'm, uh, I'm fortunate um, and thrilled to be part of, this is based on readiness. And so it's very exciting that, um, this work is on the road and it's happening and um, you know there's going to be other phases coming coming forward and I'll even find out more about them later on. Right now we're only focused on phase one to make sure we're doing it right and to adequately respect the voices that we are hearing and to um, you know respectfully curate and represent those voices within our report to the ministry so that the ministry can take this information and really work on policy tools and whatever they need to do um, that 
that would be informed by first voices um, from the child welfare system and interconnected systems. As we know, if you're from child welfare, it doesn't mean you're only from child welfare. Many of our young people are interconnected to other systems, such as homelessness, the youth criminal justice system, and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is an absolutely right correction to make too, because I was a baby at 18, but there are definitely folks who are turning 18 and are definitely ready to take care of themselves. And we've talked on previous podcasts where we were talking about youth homelessness, specifically, you know, a 15 year old who is able to take care of themselves is working and managing going to school. You know, they should have barriers in front of them to be able to rent an apartment on their own, but those barriers exist. And, you know, how can we change our systems where we remove barriers like that? So absolutely correct. I'm the baby, but not all 18 year olds are. Babies. I just wanted to add one more thing. <laughs> yeah. I just want sure. to also add the fact that, you know, when we think about young people and ages, we also think about capacity and maturity. Um, and I have to say that, and I've, I've, said, I've talked about this many times at CAH and other, other places where I've spoken um, at, at conferences and summits, is that when we think about young people who are experiencing homelessness, for example, or young people who have opted themselves to take themselves out of their home and into the child welfare system, we're talking about young people who are wise beyond their age, who think about their own safety because their home environment may not be safe. I know with my own experience, um, I started to escape my home um, at the age of 13 because under the age of 13, I don't know where I would go. But at 13, I had friends that I could go stay with and I could couch surf with. And I didn't know I was homeless because at the end of the day, for me, it was like, oh, I'm visiting my friends. I'm going to stay with them for a month. But like <laughs> that actually is homelessness as part of the spectrum. And so young people, are wise beyond their years and what they do may be seen as negative or as juvenile or as delinquency but a lot of, a lot of their choices are survival choices that make sense for them at that at that specific moment in time and so I want to also just celebrate young people for being able to make hard decisions even though they end up in harder situations in order to escape violence and negative um, situations in, in their in their home environments. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to change our system, which is very blanket response. You know, we need to better support these, these, you know, these youth who are ready to live their lives uh, in safety and dignity. And yeah, I just think that's so incredibly important. So I just think that readiness indicators is such an incredible way to move forward and to, to remove the agent, the aging out instead, because it is just such a system that has failed. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Um, so I want to, again, shift a little bit over and, you know, talk about, about a bit more about Indigenous children and how, um, how failed by the system, unbelievably failed by a colonial system that they've been, how overrepresented they are. So when we're talking about, you know, First Nation, Inuit and Métis children are still being stolen from their families, right? Like, let's name it. That's what's happening. Um, so you've been working closely with the incredible human Cindy Blackstock. I am such a huge fan of hers and her work. Um, over at the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. So can you tell us more about some of the work your organizations have been doing together? Hmm. Um, Cindy has been a supporter of the Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition since the beginning. Um, she has been a supporter of mine um, since 2012. Um, and so we kind of go a little bit back. <laughs> and uh, she is definitely my favorite um, advocate. And I definitely look up to her as well. Um, she, I think she, she calls me a superstar, but I'm just like, you can't call me that. Like the, 
that, that's what I'm looking at when I look at you kind of thing. And it's just a really great relationship that we have. And the, the work that we're doing um, together is really about elevating the realities of First Nations young people. Um, you know, Canada has been really fighting First Nations people for about 14 years in terms of kids, kids, you know, children. Um, and so, and, and this week they're actually in court and I don't know when this recording is going to be out, but this, when I say this week, it's June 14th to June 18th. Um, and so these are the federal court hearings and Canada is fighting against First Nations children and it's very discriminatory. And so the whole purpose of the legal um, team is really to fight against systemic racism um, for First Nations children so that they have equitable supports, resources, um, and access regardless of their status um, and regardless of their identities. And we know that in this country, there is is inequity, are inequities, I should say, when it comes to First Nations peoples in general, and their outcomes, and also the, the added um, reality that a lot of their supports and services are kind of um, divided between provincial and federal governments in terms of who pays for what, who does this, who does that, and really confuses a lot of people, but also we've lost lives because of that fight as well. And so Jordan's principle was created because of a young boy who died due to the same fight between the federal and provincial government fighting over who's going to pay for what. And then he just, he's not here with us today. And so the federal court hearings is about Jordan's principle and about equitable, equitable supports and rights for First Nations kids and compensation um, for the people that we've lost, but then for people who have been intergenerationally traumatized as well. And so for us working with Cindy Blackstock, it's really about elevating those realities and educating Canadians about the current context, but also just reminding folks that, you know, we, we don't live in a country that was colonized. We live in a colonizing country. It's, it's still current. <laughs> we currently still, and when I say we, I mean Canada still still colonizes. And the residential school systems uh, and the 60s scoop is is basically the pipeline that created the child welfare system that we know now. And so you are right to say that there's still people who are who are who are discriminated against because they're First Nation, because they're Inuit, because they're Métis. Um, and then at, as a result of poverty that is systemic, poverty is a systemic issue because of inequities, um, their children are being taken into, into the child welfare system as well. So these are issues that have been happening that will continue to happen until we actually have some reconciliation, not just reconciliation, but reconciliation to really um, incorporate and implement the TRC um, you know, recommendations that came from the Truth and Reconciliation Report. And without that, we're not going to have much movement in terms of healing, and we're not going to have much movement in terms of um, reconciliation. Uh, and Canada, with this court case, is really, um, really showing its face as to where their priorities are because if they if they prioritize first nation children they wouldn't be they wouldn't come up with excuses they would just compensate people and just compensate people as to how they want to be compensated um first nations people have had their identity stolen have had ethnic cleansing happening historically in canada we have an intergenerational obligation to first nations peoples of Canada to provide them whatever compensation that they would like, because they it's not even the fact that they deserve it. It's accountability. It's the responsibility of a nation who has colonized, who has raped, who has um, violated 
First Nations people, but also Inuit and Métis people as well. So it's really about educating people, elevating voices. And, you know, on June 11th, we held our, our part one of one of our events um, pertaining to the federal court hearings. Um, and we had the legal counsel team really educate Canadians, but also Cindy Blackstock educate Canadians. Um, and this was uh, in partnership with the First Nations Caring Society of Canada, supported by the Association of Native Child and Family Serving Agencies of Ontario, as well as the Ontario Children's Advancement, sorry, Ontario Children's Aid, Ontario Association of Children's Aid Societies. Sorry, our acronyms are so similar, so I always get mixed up, but OACAS and CFSAO um, supported this as well. And so we had a great feedback. We had 840 people attend live. Um, and to this day, we have about 2,000 people who have clicked on the the, the, the video to view because there's a lot of really important information and on Aboriginal People's Day on June 21st from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. we're going to be holding part two um, of the event and at this event we're going to be talking about the post-hearing impacts um, and what happened and what does this mean for Canada and for First Nations children so it's just really exciting to keep continuing to work with Cindy um, and Cindy has um, supported us beyond um, First Nations um, relevant issues as well um, and so we're just very proud and very humbled to have Cindy champion the OCAC because she does really support us. She's absolutely incredible as uh, as you are. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk, you know, the government talks big about wanting to take action. Well, one of the big actions you could take right away is stop fighting um, Indigenous people in court, right? I mean, let's drop that. That's a good first step. It has been an incredibly dark year for so many, for kids in care, uh, for people experiencing homelessness. Um, it's been a tough, tough year. You know, so many deaths, uh, a lot of negativity. And you keep going. You keep pushing through. You're lighting it up. You're doing important work. Uh, for our listeners, how, how do you keep that passion? How do you keep that enthusiasm going? How do you push through the dark times? Um, I Honestly, it's a burden of labor. Uh, coming from the system. So I have lived expertise. Uh, I'm a first voice advocate in terms of child welfare, housing, homelessness, mental health system. I, I've just been through a lot in life. And I feel like, you know, I feel like my purpose is to affect change. And I've been given gifts by the creator to do that. Um, I think that since I was little, I believed in this, that my spirit just has a spirit for change and to be part of that change and to lead change in some capacity. And I've been able to do that since I was very young. Um, and I think that part of pushing forward is remembering that future generations should not experience what I and other people historically have experienced. And that's something that keeps me going. But I have to also say that a caveat of this is that just because we keep pushing doesn't mean we don't have bad days. I have bad days all the time. Burden of labor is huge labor. It's a huge burden. And so self-care is important, but self-care is not just about bathtubs and, you know, soaking in it and having like roses sent to us. Self-care is, is also just looking at the reality head on. Um, and really like really um, introspectively reflecting on what's going on, but also continuously asking yourself, what is your positionality in the work that you're doing and how can you do it better? Um, but then also, you know, knowing and grieving that you're not perfect either. And that some days you have to just like sit down and be quiet so that you have some time to yourself and then get back up and get back to it. So it's definitely an ebb and flow in terms of, you know, pushing forward. Part of pushing forward is never a forward linear line. It's always scribbly and up and down and that's part of it. 
And I think that that's the beauty of what we do, but also the the sadness of what we do. What we do should not be should not be something that we need to do, but we're here and we have to do it. So it's an accountability for us, and it's a it's a massive burden of labor. Um, and hopefully, in future generations, they'll have less work to do because of our work today. Um, and we have less work to do because of the work of previous. First Voice Advocates as well. So I need to, to give thanks to the spirits who are no longer here today, um, who and who people who also walk with walk among us today um, from historical um, advocacy work that has affected change. Um, and so who knows what would have been the current context if those changes didn't happen. But now we're working with the current context and looking to a future where future advocates don't have to do as much work because we know we're not going to get a perfect system, but we can work towards something that is is um, promising and something that will benefit the most amount of people, if not all. And also remember that, you know, darkness, darkness should only be temporary. But part of part of that being temporary is the fact that people like me don't have a choice to do this work. I don't have a choice to do this work. I need to do this work. It's an obligation. Um, and I think that many people understand this. And I feel that sometimes people think, oh, wow, you know, she's doing this work. She's volunteering. And it's like, no, I, I don't really have a choice. Um, I see what the what the problem is. And I, I, see, I seem to think that I know what some of those solutions can be. But I want to work with communities to figure out solutions collectively and proactively and ethically and work forward so that future leaders after me are able to take on the, the torch and keep pushing forward. I think that's just so beautifully said, you know, like your feet are planted in today. You are appreciative and looking back on the learnings and celebrating um, the changes that have been made, you know, and so that drives me to my, you know, next thought for you is, is what's coming up next for you? What you have so much happening, um, the good days and bad and in between days, um, yeah, what do you what like, I guess, what are you looking forward to? What are you working toward? What's what would you like to highlight that you're working on next? I mean, you know, it's my journey has been interesting. And I actually melted down um, last weekend or two weekends ago. Um, just just thinking about my entire journey, because even before my conception, I was disadvantaged because I come from a minority population from the island that my parents come from, my ancestors come from. We're a minority ethnic group, Tamil people or Tamil people, I should say. And um, and so we have we've experienced genocide. So I don't know much of my family um, beyond my grandparents. And I never met my grandparents either because of family breakdown and migration and genocide. Um, and so I was born into inadequacy, but also born into survival mode, concrete, chronic, complex, you know, survival mode. And then I myself had to be in survival from a child um, because I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I'm a survivor of youth homelessness. Um, I'm a survivor of, you know, just mental health discrepancies since I was a young person uh, or when I was a young person because of those experiences on top of other experiences that I faced. So homelessness and, you know, being an intimate uh, partner violence relationship and so on and so forth. And so, um, I just got a job offer, um, which I'm very excited about and very um, shocked in a good way. Uh, and not to say that I don't deserve this and I, and I don't, because I do, I fully deserve this. Um, but what I have to say is I'm shocked that it's happened now at this moment in time when everything is just popping for me. <laughs> Um, things are really aligning and I went from being homeless to um, now having a full-time permanent job and I remember when I was 18 
I told people that either I'm going to be a CEO of an organization, which I am, um, or I'm also going to be somehow investing money into communities and into um, people. And with this actual position, so I'm already a CEO, but with this position, um, I'm now able to invest into communities to support people into um, developing solutions for themselves and communities uh, into, uh, you know, developing um, solutions for themselves. Um, and that's something I'll be able to do with this position. I can't say any much more about where it is or what I'm doing, but I, I'm in a very um, high role. It's a leadership position and I get to work with money um, and communities and to affect change and continue what I do. And during this time, and I was telling Michael before, um, you know, this, this discussion happened, I said, I was very reluctant about, you know, going into normal nine to five jobs because change wasn't there. And that's why I forgone, you know, income, adequate income in order to do an effect change in society for so many years, about 15 years now. And after 15 years of putting in so much work, I finally found something that puts me, catapults me into a leadership role again, and in a managerial role, I should say, um, that continues to affect change, meaningful, adequate, ethical change. And um, I used to get flack from people like you could work here, you could work there. And I was just like, no, it's not for me. And I'm going to wait until the right job comes into my lap. And now it's here. So I'm very excited to to start this role um, this year. Um, I'm still going to be the CEO of OCAC. Um, that OCAC has always been a part-time role, although it seems very full-time, but it's been a part-time role. And I'm still going to be involved in community. But this next phase of my life for the next 10 years, I'm looking forward to how I'm I can continue with this foundation um, to effect change um, from the end user point of view and not just from like higher ups. It's so important to have grassroots, uh, you know, led change. And this position will enable me to encourage that and facilitate those conversations as well. So I'm very excited for the future. Well, congratulations. Very well deserved. Hey, you're doing so much. So this is a bit of a loaded question. Where can people go to find out? Uh, more information on what you're doing and how to support. Definitely. I mean, on Facebook is, so we've actually functioned without a website forever <laughs> and we've been very successful without it. Our main source of information goes out um, through our newsletter. Um, but then outside of that newsletter, Facebook, so Ontario Children's Advancement Coalition on Facebook is the way to go. And also on Twitter, we're there. So it's at the at sign and then Child Coalition, the same handle for Instagram as well. Um, people usually follow me um, as well because I like, you know, I do, I have a hundred different things that I do. And so I'm always talking about different opportunities and um, talking about ways that people can get involved in different opportunities. So people can also follow me on Instagram at um, rising.phoenix7 um, and then on Twitter at C-H-E-Y-R-A-T-N-A-M. And uh, I would encourage people to most definitely um, follow OCAC, but then if they want to, they can also follow me. But there's going to be tons of information coming out. So on the Instagram page, um, you could actually find the subscription link to the newsletter where we actually update people on the Redness Indicators Project, but also other opportunities that are relevant to child welfare and so on and so forth. Well, Cheyenne, it was such a privilege to sit down with you today and talk to you, um, carve out some time to really dig into the work that you're doing and the issues that we all care about that you are um, at the forefront of. So I just, yeah, Michael and I, from both of us, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And we look forward to having you back again to hear about the, the, the next adventure and how the new, uh, the new job's going as well.
Sounds good. Well, Steph, every time, um, home runs every time that we have Cheyenne join us on the show, just the, the knowledge, uh, I learned so much uh, and, you know, and, and also uh, get inspired to do more too going forward. I, I worked uh, in a previous job, we uh, operated group homes and we, we knew, and so we did a program uh, around human trafficking and, and learned so much because I didn't know, like many people many years ago, I had always thought human trafficking was a result. It was an international thing. It didn't happen here. I was like, you know, I, and I was very, very wrong. Um, and very much so in York region where I work. And they talked about it. it's not money, it's not drugs, it's not a movie. It, it is really about um, being accepted in a sense of family when they're trafficked and they, they prey on those vulnerabilities. So to hear uh, Cheyenne talk about that, it, uh, it really brought that back. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's, it's funny too, when we talk about these predators who come in and, and uh, come in and try to get kids right when they're vulnerable, I think it's so important that these aren't kids who are weak, you know, these are strong youth who are just failed by the system, the system is weak. And it's the system that is allowing that kind of uh, harvesting and human trafficking to happen, you know, and, and um, yeah, I just hope that Again, like just so appreciative for Cheyenne for making our jobs really easy today. Um, it's so nice having a guest that just like, you know, is just such a pleasure and joy to listen to, even when we're talking about the hard stuff. Um, I just really appreciate that. And I hope folks really like have a good listen and, and um, reflect on, on what we talked about today. Yeah, you hit it right on there. Heavy stuff, but the optimism and enthusiasm and energy uh, in her voice is, is contagious. Hey, Canada, let's get behind this. Let's take steps forward. Let's listen to this podcast and support Cheyenne and the incredible work she's doing. Thanks again, Steph. Always a pleasure. Another great episode of On The Way Home. I'll see you next week. See you then. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.